First Timothy chapter 1 and reading uh, verses 8 down to verse 17. And our focus uh, for this morning is on verses 8 uh, to 11. But context is always good. So hear the word of God. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because He counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on Him for everlasting life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. May we add our Amen to these words. For as the grass withers and the flower fades, God's Word alone stands forever. Well, we're still kind of in the introduction of this letter. It always seems that these letters have a whole lot at the very beginning with which we need to go through because it's setting the stage for all that is contained in this letter. And we saw last week how Paul uh, jumped right into the great concern that he had for Timothy. And one of the reasons why he wanted Timothy to stay in the church in Ephesus, and that was to deal with the rise of false teachers and heterodoxy, or false doctrine that they were promoting, which had come in into Ephesus. I mean, it, it again is something to astound that astound us that already within the first 20 years of the early church having begun in the uh, resurrection of Christ in the day of Pentecost, already false doctrine has now come in. And as Paul tells us further on in this opening chapter, it's led many astray, even shipwrecked the faith of some. And that is, uh, that is the evil of, of false doctrine and the wickedness of false teachers. That's why in Acts 20, when we read of Paul being met by the elders from Ephesus as he's on his way to Jerusalem, he, he doesn't hold any punches in how he views false teachers and heterodoxy, false doctrine. He says, these are savage wolves. <laughs> You know, they're not even that kind wolf. They're not even that dangerous wolf. They're, they're savage. They're coming not to build up, 
but to destroy and to take away a following after themselves so that they can have their own bellies, their own pride filled and not the, the glory of Christ. And what we see here this morning, one area of concern was the heterodoxy, the false doctrine that, sounded, uh, that surrounded the right use of the law. You see that in verse 7. They desired to be teachers of the law, but they were ignorant. They, they were not understanding the things that they taught or the things that they were affirming. And then he goes on in verses 8 and 9 to say, you know, the, the law, the law is good if it's used lawfully, but the law was never made, never given for a righteous man. It was given for sinners. So he has this concern about how we as a church and how we as God's people take the law of God and apply it to our lives. We know that the law is good. Do you know that? We're going to deal with that in a a few minutes. But I want you to think on that question. Do you know that the law of God is good? There isn't anything wrong with God's law. We're going to define very shortly what we mean by God's law. But what was wrong and what was happening was the way people were handling it, the way they were applying it to their life, and the way that they were seeking God through it. If I could illustrate it with this, and again, I, I only uh, pick on teenagers and, and children sometimes because I was one once and I know the battles and the struggles that are always before you having gone before you in them. But how many of us have ever had to as teens endure a curfew from our parents and we think it's just so unjust, so unfair that they would put a rule over us to guide how much time we spent outside of the home. And a rule that would bind us to coming back at a certain time. How many of us have ever loved those rules? (laughs) Parents do. (laughs) But we know what we do with such a rule. We don't step back and understand that law, that rule is good. And it is meant for our good. What we do with it is that we manipulate it to suit our circumstances. And we, on the other side of it, justify things when we break that rule. Well, you know, it was late, friends were there, and I was trying to get away, or we had a flat tire, or we ran out of gas. We, we want to justify the breaking of those rules. We're very good at that. We don't need anyone to teach us those things. We have a heart that already deals with justifying sin. But the law is good. And Paul wants us to understand that truth. It's good, but some are handling it wrong. Paul noted in Romans 7 this very same thing. Romans 7.12 The law is holy. And the commandment is holy, just, and good. And he spoke that as one who was struggling with the pressure that the law was bringing on his life, the demands that it made. He said, when God said, you shall not covet, suddenly I start to see that coveting is a real problem in my heart. 
I'm doing the things I don't want to do. I'm not doing the things I should do. It would be easy at that point to justify my sin. It would be easy at that point to say, well, the law is just making me miserable. Let me put it aside so I can get on with my life and do things that I think are good. Don't we do that? He says, no. The law is good, but look what he says there in verse 8. The law is good only if you use it lawfully. (laughs) It can become a burden, it can become a problem in your life when you use it unlawfully. And it seems that these false teachers were quite skillful at a wrong use of the law. And this is the first thing that he says to Timothy. Get this in order for the church in Ephesus. (laughs) It's a real issue. Now what do we mean when we say the law? And again, we have to be clear on this. The law can mean a variety of things. Scripture uses it sometimes to speak of the entirety of Holy Scriptures. Psalm 119 does a bouncing back and forth when it speaks about the law that is good in our life and then the Word of God that is hidden in our heart that we might not sin against Him. There's always this this great link between the law and the Word of God. And so sometimes it can mean the entirety of Holy Scriptures. Sometimes it can refer to the fullness of what we call the Levitical law which is found in Genesis through to Deuteronomy. And that includes not just the moral law, the Ten Commandments that were given, it includes all the ceremonial law that surrounded the temple worship and the high priestly duties that were required both of Israel and of the priesthood. That ceremony with the temple that was to teach Israel Israel about the coming Messiah sometimes and that also included not just the moral ceremony, the civil laws statutes and principles that were put in place if if an animal fell into a hole on your land (laughs) what you should do so sometimes the law refers to all of that that's under the Levitical umbrella But most often, most often it refers directly to the moral law that is summarized by the Ten Commandments. Most often, that's what is in mind. When we think of the law of God, we think of the Ten Commandments that He gave to Israel upon redeeming them out of Egypt and establishing them as His covenant people. And the Ten Commandments which the Spirit takes and writes upon our hearts and minds so that we know God's law. And the Ten Commandments that we often read at least once a month and realize the holiness of God and the righteousness we are called to. And I believe that's indeed what Paul is referring to when you come to verse 9 and 10 and you see him dealing with aspects of the moral law and murder and and fornication and kidnapping, lying, perjury, these things. He's dealing here with the Ten Commandments. 
And what was happening in their day, and it still happens today, is that false teachers brought in teachings that denied the excellent nature and place of God's law, and they used it for their own benefit, their own means of elevating themselves or portraying themselves as godly and one who should be followed. You think about Psalm 1. It talks about the way of the blessed man. It talks about the way of the one who is in Christ Jesus. And what does it say there about God's law? It's a delight. <laughs> I'm meditating on it day and night. Now, how many of you... Again, this is the challenge, isn't it? How many of you in Christ Jesus meditate on the Ten Commandments day and night? <laughs> is it a delight to your heart? You know, I have often found in civilian circles anyways that the law becomes less delightful when I found uh, that I have been caught breaking it. <laughs> you know, when those red and blue lights start flashing behind you and you have to pull over. <laughs> it's not much fun. And yet, someone says, for the blessed man, for the one who is in the Lord Jesus God's law is my delight. I meditate on it day and night. Very few of us here are saying that, aren't we? <laughs> it's something, isn't it? Or Psalm 19. We just sang it in the opening of our service. More to be desired is God's law than gold, and it's sweeter than honey. <laughs> that, that this is the response of a heart that looks at the law that revived the soul and enlightened the eyes and brought forth truth and righteousness more to be desired than gold. <laughs> and it's sweeter than honey. Because there again, we understand that what God has done in the gospel of His Son is He has brought His law upon our hearts and minds that we can see the work of redemption, where we are headed, where you heard me say last time, where these very things that command my life are going to be fulfilled in me. And I will have no other gods. I will not have any idolatry. I will not take the name of the Lord in vain. I will rest in my God for all eternity. God's law is going to be fulfilled in me. That's why I desire it more than gold. And it's sweeter than honey. And so I ask you, as we consider this morning, the law is good. Does the law elevate Christ in your life? Are you using it lawfully? There's a challenge, isn't it? The law is good. That's the first thing to consider. And how that statement stands against the modern mantra of the church today in general. This is a blanket statement to be sure. But how many times do we hear from the church of Christ, we are no longer under the law. We're under grace. No. We've been through Romans already dealing with that verse that says that and understanding its proper context. 
But you know how many people take that verse and use it to mean that God's law no longer has any place over my life. That I'm free to live solely on the law of Jesus Christ and do what He leads me to do so that in my life I'm loving God with all my heart and all my soul and all my strength and all my being. And then you start saying to a Christian, well then, so are you saying that you can have other gods before you? And they'll say, well, no. No, no, but I'm loving God. I'm under grace. The law doesn't bind me there anymore. So you can have idolatry and false worship of God. You take Him through it. You can take the Lord's name in vain? No, no. Well, you can dishonor your mom and dad? No. And when you do that, they, they begin to realize, no, those commandments are still there and we're to follow them until you, you come to the fourth commandment and you say, well, what about keeping the Sabbath? Well, that one, it, it really doesn't apply anymore because Christ has come and He's abolished the law. And, and why I'm saying it like this is you can understand what the church means when they use that mantra, we're no longer under the law but under grace. It has often become a ploy for lawlessness in respect of the Lord's day. That's a wrongful use of the law. And yet how many do that? You see, this problem that Paul is dealing with with Timothy and Ephesus is still around today. Sadly, the church has come to view God's law as contrary to the gospel, as a legalistic formation of obedience that stands in contrariness to the gospel and sound doctrine. But again, as it often is, we get mixed up as to what is really contrary to the gospel. The law isn't. You know what's contrary to the, to the gospel and what's contrary to sound doctrine It's unbelief. It's sinful conduct. It's self-righteousness. Those things are contrary. But the law isn't. As Psalm 19 said, and as we sung, the law converts the soul. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. It endures forever. It is true and righteous altogether. Tell me, how is that contrary to the gospel? It isn't. And it's used unlawfully. God's good law has always been subject to manipulation and corruption. And we do that with all things. This was something that I learned just a couple years ago in respect of the Charter of Rights. I'm going to just take a little rabbit trail here for a minute so you can understand how the good law has always been subject to manipulation and corruption. We do it in the civil realm. The Charter of Rights, do you know why that was given? Its purpose was to protect the populace from government oppression. Its purpose is to hold the government accountable so that they do not take away our right and freedom to religion, to life, to liberty, to all of these things. But who is the one that uses the Charter of Rights to oppress and manipulate conformity to its way? 
The very law that's meant to protect us is what is used against us to say you don't have that freedom of conscience. You must do it our way. It happens. Civil laws. Civil laws that are meant to bring justice. How often are they used for unlawful convictions or unlawful acquittals? We see it, don't we? I use those as illustrations to say that within Christianity, the moral law is used unlawfully too. And it has been. It's been used to build up self-righteousness. How many people would say, I am a good person? And you say, well, define what you mean by good. And they will tell you. They will list it all off. And it sounds like they've never broken those last six commandments. Wow. Sometimes it's used to justify less heinous sins. Well, I may have looked at that woman and lusted after her in, her heart, in my heart, but, but, but I haven't committed adultery. <laughs> I've never committed murder, though I hate that person over there. Well, this was only a white lie. It's not like it hurt anybody. How often we even look at the law and take away the fullness of it to justify less heinous sins. We use it to promote false godliness and holiness. The rich young ruler was an example of that when Jesus confronted him with the law and he said, I have kept all of these things from my youth. I'm a righteous man. (laughs) Why wouldn't God love me? And sometimes it's used to place people in bondage to a legalistic system. And I think that, more than often than not, is a problem within the church. That our traditions become the regulations by which we conform people and define Christianity. Paul himself was caught up in this. He says there in verse 13, he admits, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man. I was bound in this ignorance. I was a teacher of the law, but I didn't understand what it was about. You can read of him and his boastfulness in Philippians 3. He said, of the Pharisees and concerning the law, I was righteous. If anyone kept all 2,600 precepts, principles, and statutes of the Ten Commandments, I was that man. I never fell out of step with anything. He knows that it gets used unlawfully. My friends, the, the worst thing you can do with the Ten Commandments is to look at them and think, I've kept pretty much every one of them as well as I could. I'm a righteous man. The law was never given to proclaim your righteousness. The lawful use of the law. We are to use it lawfully. It's good if one uses it lawfully. And what does that mean? Well, 
in, in our settings and understanding. It's what we know as the threefold use of the law. And, and, and I think this is where wisdom comes in to understand what is the law, the Ten Commandments, how do we use it lawfully. And the first use of the law, using it lawfully, is to reveal and convict us of sin before God's majesty and holiness. If you hear, if you read the Ten Commandments and you don't come away from it with your mouth stopped and realizing the guilt that is yours for breaking God's law, then you have not used it lawfully. It's meant to subdue us before God. It's meant to convict us that we have transgressed the glory, the majesty and holiness of the God who has created us. Romans 3.19 Oh, how often, how often, especially we who are in Christ, how often we step over that when it comes to God's law. Can you, can you honestly hear, and I'll take, take this commandment because he uses it first here. Can you honestly hear, honor your father and mother? And just pass over that and not stop to realize, oh God, what did I do against mom or dad today? His purpose is to convict you of sin. Not, not so that you can sit there in your sin and just well up with a depressive attitude of shame and, and humiliation and sit there and wallow in it, but so that you can see that sin is real in your life and understand your guilt before God and so flee to Christ. So flee to Christ. Oh God, I have offended Your glory. I pray for the blood of Christ to wash me clean. Forgive me for His sake, Father. Isn't that what Paul said in Galatians 3.24? That the law is such a schoolmaster over us to bring us to Christ so that we may be justified. So that we may come to Christ knowing that He alone is able to pardon our sins. That He alone is able to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. Not the good that I have done with my hands. Do you use the law lawfully like that? It's also purpose to bring a common standard of morality on society to restrain evil and wrongdoers. God has written, Romans 2.15, upon the conscience of everyone. No person is exempt. God has written His law upon their conscience. It's part of being created in the image of God so that they are without excuse. You do not need to tell anyone that murder is wrong. Why? Because God has stamped that truth on their conscience. Now their conscience may be seared against that truth, but it doesn't negate that they know That law is there, and it's there to curb their immorality. What a thing for us 
as believers to be able to bear witness to this world. We don't need to prove them that God exists. We just need to show them your conscience testifies that there is a morality over you. Who put that there? And the third is to teach Christians the way of righteousness and obedience so that our lives can be lived to the glory of God and by that the Spirit can conform us to that will of God. And here's where we again have to be careful. God's law, the Ten Commandments, they don't sanctify us. God does. But He uses His law. And He shows us in the Lord Jesus, this is where it's headed in your life. To that One in whom you have been redeemed. To that One who is your Redeemer. We are conforming you. And by we, I mean the Godhead. We are conforming you to that glorious image. The One who fulfilled the law of God in all things. Now you understand what it is to pursue holiness. What it is to do what is right and just. What it is to walk humbly with your God. That's the right use of God's law. And here, Paul also in verses 9 and 10, he shows us secondly that the law is meant for the lawless. And here in these two verses, Paul really spells it out. That God's moral law is needed for those who do not comprehend the purity, holiness, and righteousness of God. And if you don't comprehend the purity, holiness, and righteousness of God, then you will never comprehend your need for the Lord Jesus and His gospel. And this is where I say we know that he's dealing with the Ten Commandments when he says the law is for the lawless, for those who are ignorant of God's law and thus are disobedient, insubordinate. It's for those who have no fear of God and are sinners. They transgress His law without any thought or regard. What is it for someone to come into our land and we have the rule of law over our land and they come in and they say, I don't care what your laws say, I'm going to do my own thing. How long do you think they would last in our land? (laughs) How much more before a holy Righteous and just God. All that fear of God is lost upon a people. They have no regard for the transgressions they commit every day in thought, word, and deed. It's for those who are unholy, corrupt in their heart and thus profane, and they treat anything of God with contempt. And it's because of who they are as lawless people that they commit violence against each other. The murder of fathers and mothers, the fifth commandment. You see, I know some of us who are older have seen a few generations and have seen the decline of respect for authority. And Paul puts it in such heinous terms, the murder of fathers and mothers, manslayers, the sixth commandment, and drophonous <laughs> murder of people. Have you read the news lately? Can we go a day 
without hearing of some horrendous murder. Sexual impurity, the seventh commandment. Fornicators, sodomites. That's at an all-time high, isn't it? At least in our eyes. may have been worse in times past. We have nothing really to measure it by. Kidnapping, slavery, eighth commandment, stealing a man's life. Lying, perjury, ninth commandment. You know, these, these, hens, these sins, as Paul ex- lays them before us, they, they expose the gross nature of the lawless man, of the corrupt soul. We are lawless. But it's easy to read that list and simply say, well, that's not me. <laughs> Did you get the catch-all point that he makes at the end of it? In verse 10. And if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Yeah, you may not see yourself in that little brief list that Paul set before you. That's why we read Galatians 5. Do you realize the lusts that are in your heart? The lust of the flesh, the envying, the, the slander, the backbiting, the revelry, all those things. You know, God, God impeaches all of us with these words. And if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. You see, God says the law is in accordance with sound doctrine. The gospel does not make God's obsolete. It does not lower God's righteous demands. It requires of us a full obedience to God's righteousness. We need to know that. Because then we can see, as Paul brings out in verse 11, then we can see that the gospel isn't, I mean, sorry, that the law is not contrary to the gospel. The law leads us to the glorious gospel. That's what it does. Picture yourself in the court of God. You've been accused of violating every commandment. My friends, do that. Go through God's law. You have ten solid witnesses that you have broken every single one of God's law. Thought, word, and deed. (laughs) The nature of your heart is filled with this corruption and you're there being accused. You've been found guilty by the just judge who must measure your guilt according to His righteous standard. You have no way to look at God and say, well, I'm not like Hitler. (laughs) As if that justifies any wrong that we have done. (laughs) How many times do you hear that? I'm not an axe murderer. No. But you've dishonored your parents. We think that's a leap and a jump. God's law shows us it isn't. And you've been sentenced, accused, found guilty. You've been sentenced justly to its punishment. Death, which means the torment and wrath of hell forever. That's God's judgment. And there we stand before God's court, guilty and sentenced. And in comes your advocate, 
In comes the Lord Jesus Christ. In comes the Son of God sent by the Father in love to become a man. In comes the Son of God who in His humanity was tempted and tried by Satan and and experienced the, the hatred and evil of this world. He was tempted and tried just to break even one statute or precept of God's law. But He didn't. In comes the Lord Jesus, who it could be said of is true and full in obedience and righteousness to every part of God's law. There we see what true humanity is all about. Why we were created. There we see what it means to truly bring glory to God on the earth. Have any of us done that? Christ has. And He could say at the end of His earthly life, Father, I have glorified You on earth. Isn't that marvelous? And there comes Jesus Christ who is tried by earthly and heavenly courts and found innocent and unworthy of death. And yet he is sentenced to death. And here's the amazing thing to grab and understand that as he is being sentenced unto death, he is the one who is saying to the Father, I am willingly bearing the guilt and punishment that is deserved by those you have given me. I am here to take their place in death. Isn't that amazing? And so the Father lays upon His Son all our guilt, all our iniquity, all our sin. And He pours out on His Son all the wrath and the justice that we deserve. Isaiah 53, smitten by God and afflicted. It it wasn't this earthly Roman court and these Roman soldiers or Pilate who, who put Jesus to death. It was the Father. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And if that doesn't amaze you enough, listen to these words of Isaiah 53. It pleased the Lord to bruise Him. This was God's pleasure. Not in the sense of enjoyment, but in the sense of my will is that my Son should bear your your sins unto the judgment of death so that the law's penalty against you can be fulfilled. That's the glorious Gospel. (laughs) And the law is what leads us to it. (laughs) Because we come as wretched sinners, accused and guilty and sentenced, and we come to the One who has done nothing worthy of death. He has done nothing so that death could not hold Him. He, 
He has risen from the death as the victor over it because He was sinless. We come to Him and we make Him the offering for our sins. And God, by His law, declares sentences served. You're free. And you are so free in Christ that no one can accuse you of being sinful in my eyes ever again. No one can ever condemn you because the atonement of my Son is what forever covers you. And the law leads us there. That's the glorious gospel. That's why we meditate on the law day and night. That's why it's a delight. Because where does it bring us? It brings us to Christ. And here we see in this earthly life, our struggles. We, we read Galatians 5 about, about the warfare of the Spirit and our flesh. We see the seeds of sin and the seeds of the corruption of sin rise up within us sometimes. And doesn't it look awful? Isn't it awful what Christians can do sometimes? And the law, the law, it would accuse and find us guilty. It would sentence us to death again and again and again were it not for Christ. That's the amazing thing. This is sound doctrine. This is the glorious gospel of our blessed God that has been given to us and is now committed to us. Do you know this? How do you use the law? You use it to proclaim your own glory, your own self-righteousness, your own goodness. Does it lead you to the one who is righteous, who is truly good? Come to Christ. Know this glorious gospel. Don't settle for a goodness that will fail you in the court of God. You look to Christ. He will save you from all your sins. Let us pray.